Hey folks, welcome to this week's episode of Interesting Stuff. It's dropping a little bit late this week, as you all know. I can't get the volume to come down. There we go. I'm still an amateur when it comes to this stuff. Not very good with the uh, soundware and hardware and all this other crap. I'm just not that kind of guy. Anyways, last week, as you all know, we did two podcasts. And uh, the second one, which had, you know, Star Major Jim on there. Man, was that a good podcast or what? The audio came in a little bit messed up, but I thought it was a great podcast. <clears throat> I could talk. I mean, we're talking about a man that's got 39 years military experience between National Guard, Reserve, and active duty. Command Sar Major spent over half his career as a Command Sar Major. That's just unreal. And we will be talking to Jim again, probably in the very near future, because there's so much of his brain I've got to pick. You know, for me, being a non-commissioned officer in the Army myself at one point, uh, I just, though it's fascinating when you get an opportunity to talk to somebody <clears throat> who has that kind of experience in all three air or, um, excuse me, in all three, uh, we're not going to say branches. I, I guess for lack of a better term, we can say branches of the army. I can't think of the actual term, all three entities of the army, you know, reserve national guard, active duty. All three are similar. All three wear the U.S. Army name tape. All three have their differences, but leadership's leadership. And Sergeant Major Jim proved over a 39-year career that it's effective. It's just, it's, it's astounding to me. I could talk to him all day. Plus, just a really nice guy. We will be talking to Jim again soon, very soon, hopefully. We just got to get our schedules to jive, and hopefully I can get the... Uh, audio to do a little bit better. Uh, this week's ep- or, uh, topic, we're going to talk about ghosts and a little bit of history. Uh, as people who have listened to this podcast for a while know that when I started it, it was originally going to be basically you know, a podcast about history and a podcast about uh, ghosts and you know, just stuff like that. That's basically what it was going to be. And if you go to uh, Podbean and uh, look it up and listen to some of the first podcasts, that's what it focused on. Now, I've changed gears over the years because, you know, as much as interesting as those topics are, there's a lot of other stuff that interests me. You know, pro wrestling, baseball, you know, other things that I have interest in. But I love coming back around and revisiting this, and I've kind of covered this today's topic on several of the much, much older podcasts. It's not going to be a rehash of a podcast. It's going to be Kind of like uh, just a re-explanation of a podcast and a subject line coming from an older podcast. So, like I said, those, the original old ones are at podbean.com. It's underneath Interesting Stuff banner. And uh, Podbean, if you're looking to do a podcast, I use Anchor now. Podbean is a great format. That's what I used when I first started off. Uh, Switched to Anchor just to see what Anchor would be like and the fact that it's free. I kind of dig that. Podbean does charge you, but with Podbean, I had no complaints whatsoever. It was a great format. Shout out to you, Podbean. And uh, if you're looking to start a podcast, I would highly recommend recommend Podbean or Anchor, the service I use now, to get started on. They make it so easy, it's not even funny. And, uh, I mean, somebody like me can do it. Anybody can do it. And uh, maybe I should start getting paid for these uh, podcasts, man. 
you know, uh, putting out Podbean and uh, Anchor props out to them. Uh, of course, nobody really listens to the show, so nobody's really going to hear it. But anyways, how's everybody's week gone? I uh, hope y'all's weekend went great. Uh, a lot of snow in certain areas, you know, back home in Memphis, man, I saw some pictures. They're using like bulldozers to get snow off Beale Street and stuff, you know, and I haven't seen anything like that since, oh goodness, probably when I was a kid, <clears throat> you know, well, not really a kid. Uh, when the big ice storm in 93, 94 hit, I was getting ready to go into the army as a matter of fact. And, uh, cause I swore in 19 January, 94. Uh, they're on Beale Street, Beale Street Recruiting Station, Memphis, Tennessee. And um, I left for basic, I think, January 25th is when I left for basic training. And I know right after, it seems to me like it was either right after or shortly after Thanksgiving, you know, is when the big ice storm really came through and hit. And we were out of power for well over a month. We ran an extension cord across the street. We are living on a street then called York, which is off uh, Central. Well, you got Central here, York's a street over, and uh, McLean, it's actually off McLean, which is off Central. And um, it's there in Midtown. It was a nice area. You know, my mom had uh, graduated school and all that stuff and, you know, started making a little bit better money, and we were living in that area at that point. And, um, you know, long story short, uh, we stretched an extension cord across York to our landlord's house because his grid had power and we ran that extension cord across York and I know we had that going for well over a month you know whatever you could play and back then there weren't as much electronics you know I think about you know adapting modern life to that I mean think about everybody's got cell phone nowadays you know on top of cell phone we're much more television dependent we're laptop dependent we're tablet dependent all that we made it for a month off, you know, <clears throat> a uh, uh, power strip plugged into an extension cord. You know, we ran a couple of space heaters on it. Uh, I think we, yeah, we plugged the TV up to it and like a VCR or something in a radio. And, you know, radio, my mom's, you know, home stereo. My mom's a big music lover. And that's all we had running off that extension cord. Uh, we had a fireplace in the living room. So, uh, you know, we could get heat from that. It was, it was really, really, you know, cold. <laughs> you know, that's, that's my memory. It was really cold. But um, Texas got a lot of it. Here where I live, we got a little bit of ice. We got a little bit of snow. We didn't really get much of anything, which I'm all for. But the weird messed up part is while it's snowing, like in Tennessee, and we're getting sleet and stuff here, Georgia's getting tornadoes. It's friggin' weird. Weird, man. Weather has lost its damn mind. I'm just hoping that, you know, we don't go into a really bad tornado season this year. Uh, I'm really tired of the tornadoes. And it seems like the last few years they have really ramped up and done a lot of damage, cost a lot of lives, and uh, it's just sad. But all that being said, I hope all y'all in the deep freeze areas are making it and that you're not freezing to death and that – uh you know, hopefully things are going to return to normal as soon as, you know, they possibly can. Just hang in there. Hang in there and uh, invest in a generator. My wife and I were talking about that the other day, you know, because we run everything electric up here, man. And I remember, you know, when I first started hearing stories about, you know, how Texas is getting hit, 
you know, I'm sitting there going, damn, if Texas getting hit, you know, and Tennessee's getting hit, you know, we probably are going to get hit. So I'm sitting there, you know, like every day, you know, thinking, okay, well, we have no fireplace in our house. We have a propane tank outside, but we've never used the damn thing. It's for a backup. You know, that shows how smart I am. I've got a backup heat source to uh, propane, you know, gas heaters in the house that are for backup. I ain't even fill the damn propane tank up because we never friggin' needed them. So you probably notice I'm trying not to curse as much. I will slip up, but I'm trying to cut it down. But anyways, I've got no propane in them. So I'm sitting there going, man, if something happens and we lose our power, we don't have electricity, we're going to be in trouble. So my wife and I have already talked and we're going to go buy a dang generator. So that way, if something does happen, we got a source of power that we can, you know, run the essential things on and uh, not have to worry about it. You know, I do have an old fire or chimney in my house where a fireplace used to be. And uh, I might look at putting in like a wood stove or something like that there. But of course we have a, it's my favorite piece of furniture. It's an antique hutch that I bought at an antique store down here. And it was made in like 1820 over in Germany. It's beautiful, man. And uh, I got it. I got a steal on it because the place is going out of business. And I paid 900 bucks for it. The price tag had 1200. I talked him down to nine and he delivered it. So it was like, wow, this is great. And I bought it for my wife, actually. This before when we were still engaged before we got married. And uh, I love it. It's sitting in front of the fireplace now. But you know what? Thinking about it, I probably need to get that chimney inspected and uh, see if it can be brought back up to code and put like a wood stove in there, you know, in case something happens. We might never need it. But then again, it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. But... Anyways, 10-minute mark. Gosh, that was perfect. Um, Getting on to the topic of today. Oh, and I got to do a shout-out to my good friend, Crowbar. You guys know him from WCW. He was a wrestler in WCW. He's now Dr. Crowbar. He is a chiropractor. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to say a friend of mine on Facebook, a legitimate friend, somebody that I I like a lot. And uh, he gave a shout-out to the podcast earlier. And uh, that means the world. So, Crowbar... My good friend, thank you so much. And you're right, Randy Savage was simply unbelievable. That man was incredible. And you actually got to, you know, know him and talk to him and all that stuff. And one day, my friend, we're going to get the schedules to jive. We're going to find the time. We're going to get you on the podcast because you're another person. I could pick your brain forever. And uh, I'm sure I would get some really, really great insight. Well, not, and I don't want any... That's another thing about this podcast. I don't like to get dirt, quote unquote. I don't like to, you know, poke fun at people or make a lot of criticisms. I will critique what I think I have the authority and the experience to critique. Military matters, stuff like that. You'll hear me hear me critique. I can't even talk today. But when it comes to like other stuff, I prefer to try to be positive. I don't want to do all this negativity and trashing, you know, people and all that stuff because I'm telling you folks what you got to remember is that anyone can sit back with 2020 hindsight and no experience or even some experience in 2020 hindsight and say well I would have done it like this like that like this like that whatever you don't know unless you're actually there what the heck's going on you know especially when it comes to creative stuff and judging people's opinion on creative stuff 
You know, everybody has a right to their own opinion. Everybody has what they like and dislike. And what folks have forgotten how to do is to respect other people's, you know, opinions and other people's abilities. And I don't have to like it or agree with it to be cool with it, man. Do your thing. You know, this is <clears throat> this is gonna be blasphemy to a lot of people out there. It might even make me lose followers. I don't have very many to begin with, but the ones I have might bail on me. I'm not a Tom Petty fan. I don't like his music. It's just not my thing. Never gotten into Tom Petty. He's one of the all time greats, there's no denying it. He's done he's sold millions of records. He's had got songs that are friggin' legendary. I don't like him, man. Does that mean I don't respect what he's accomplished? What he did? Heck no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean I go out in my way to listen to him either. Folks need to bear that in mind a little bit more today. We need more positivity. I tried to do that. But, you know, anyways, I kind of got, you know, if you've never listened to podcasts before, you're going to find out that I veer off topic and come back quite often. Okay, so we're getting into the story, which is going to be a little bit of history with some ghost talk. I'm going to open up with ghost talk. You know, uh, where I grew up in Memphis, you know, there's a lot of ghost stories in Memphis, man. I mean, a ton of them. But they're not really that well known. Most of them are like, you know, local legends. And that's kind of where it is in most places. Local legends, you know, this house is haunted. You know, this area over here is haunted. You know, this is haunted over here. But for a national mainstream audience, not a lot of people know about these things, you know. And uh, like I said, Memphis is old. It's got a very... Very, how do we put it? Um, a very, I can't think of nothing nowadays. It's It's got a lot of different chapters in its past. It's very varied, I guess. That's not the term I was looking for, but we're going to go with it. And uh, when you when you got to play a city like that, you know, that has as much stuff going on as Memphis has had, from the yellow fever to the Civil War, to uh, occupation by the Spanish at one point, occupation by the French at one point, you know, it, it's going to have a lot of, you know, spiritual activity, be it residual or be it, you know, intelligent. And you'll hear people break stuff down into all kinds of different things. I And I'm by no means a parapsychologist. I'm not. I am a par- paranormal investigator. I'm not a parapsychologist. I will never claim to be a parapsychologist. One of the things about paranormal uh, things is that or at least to me that makes it so interesting, is nobody really friggin' knows. We, we can guess. We can go off, you know, stories from the past. We can go off the limited amount of evidence that we have the, in the here and now and say, well, patterns form like this, patterns form like that, generally. But we don't know for a fact how things work on that side of the quote-unquote veil. Um, but anyways, I, I keep it simple. I break it down in two categories. Most hauntings is either going to be intelligent or it's going to be residual and intelligent covers like, you know, anything that can respond intelligently, anything that acknowledges your, you know, presence, anything that can manipulate its surroundings for the most part. And you'll hear people talk about like demons and all that stuff. All that stuff is an intelligent haunting. If it's capable of thought, it's an intelligent haunting. What a residual haunting is, is you think about it for those of you that are my age, for the people who are younger, I'm going to have a hard time explaining this. But for the people my age, a residual haunting is like back in the old days when you had the tube TVs and stuff, you know, we're talking like the 80s, 90s, 70s, all that stuff. 
you would turn the TV off and for a brief second you would have an imprint of what was on the TV before it got turned off still on the screen. Then it would gradually fade away. That's kind of what it was, a residual haunting is. It's an, uh, it can be something very mundane, but it's usually an activity that for whatever reason will occasionally manifest itself and repeat what happened over and over and over. And uh, some of those last for hundreds of years. Some of them don't last. And it can be very mundane things. Might not have any kind of significance to anybody. Footsteps going down a hallway. Chances are it's a residual. You know, uh, just voices that you can't really understand. Chances are that's a residual. You know, and uh, that's the thing about hauntings. You never really know. But generally, I put things in two categories, residual or intelligence. But growing up where I grew up at, you know, Memphis, you got a lot of ghost stories there. The most haunted area, though, I have ever traversed, and I like that big word. See, I'm using all kinds of stuff. I need to get my dang dictionary out. Uh, the most haunted area, though, that I've ever traversed, per capita, you know. Now, I've been to Europe and Korea and places like that. Let me tell you, there's, there's some ghost stuff over there. But as far as, like, most highly concentrated amount in a small area, it'd be where my grandmother grew up. And she grew up in a little town called Joan, or, uh, Pocahontas, Arkansas, which, as many of you know, is also where the great Jim Johnstone, who did all of WWE's music for 32 years, he did Steve Austin's theme, he did everybody's theme. That's where he's from originally. That's probably what it's most known for. But um, it's, a, it's a nice little town. It's on the Black River. It's in uh, northwest or northeast Arkansas. Uh, it's, it pretty much marks the boundary the Black River does between the Delta land, which is the flat farmland, and getting into the Ozark Mountains. And Pocahontas is like the first town if you're coming, you know, through Walnut Ridge and all that. You cross, you know, the river and all of a sudden you're in Pocahontas and you start seeing the hills come up. So that's kind of what marks the end of the Delta and the beginning of the Ozarks. And uh, it's a pretty little town. Got a lot of history. And um, I'm telling you, though, that area has more ghosts and ghost stories than anywhere I have ever been per capita. Where my grandmother grew up at, for the most part, was a little community. Now, you got to remember, we're going back to the 1940s, you know, 1930s, 1940s. My grandmother was born in 34. So she did her growing up in the 30s and the 40s. Back then, that area was farmland, still is. But the way it was done back then, this is before you had all the combines, and all the tractors and all that stuff. It was still manpower and, uh, you know, mules, stuff like that, ox, whatever, if you could afford them, an ox. Horses, donkeys, mules, that's what mainly did most of the farming. And you got to remember, too, during uh, the Depression, which was starting in 29, and uh, then uh, World War II kicking off in 41, up until about 46, uh, times were tough. I mean, it, it was rough. You didn't make no damn money, and then you had you know the war coming on, and with the war, they started rationing things like rubber and gasoline and everything else. So you know, at this point in time, you know, my grandmother and them would take wagons, you know, with a horse. Horse and wagon, we're talking the 1940s, and go to town, you know, or go to their neighbor's house, or, you know, do whatever they need to do. You ride on a horse, you ride on a buckboard, you know, because you didn't want to use the rubber on your tires if you could afford a car. You sure as heck didn't want to, you know, use up your gas ration. So it's just more feasible to put the car up on blocks and, uh, you know, if you had one, 
put the car up on blocks and, you know, use a horse or, you know, use a, a buckboard to get, you know, wherever you need to go and get, su- get supplies and all that stuff. Uh, most of them took care of most of their needs. I mean, they raised chickens and, you know, pigs and, you know, uh, had vegetable gardens, stuff like that. They go fishing, they go hunting to, you know, kind of fill in the food. The only thing you really need to go to town for would be like, you know, your flour and sugar and salt, coffee, you know, clothing, stuff like that. Pretty much everything else they made for themselves, which, you know, is just astounding to think that in the 1940s, people are living just like they did pretty much in the 18, you know, 70s, 1880s. It's really neat how that works out. Uh, It's a real cool little snapshot in time. But back then, the way farming was done, you know, you had the manual stuff. So my grandmother's family, they were tenant farmers, which step up from a sharecropper. A sharecropper basically went from, you know, area to area, and they would get a job, you know, helping haul in a harvest, stuff like that. And you got paid, you know, by the day. You didn't get paid by the hour back then. You either got paid by the day or, like, if you're picking cotton or something like that, you got paid by the pound. And you're not making much at all. You know, we're talking like 10 cents a day sometimes, you know, maybe a quarter. I mean, that's that's really not much money at all. And we're talking, you know, a day. It might not have been an hour. I got to rephrase that. That's not how it worked. You got paid like 10 cents for picking cotton, like 10 cents per 100 pound. So if you picked 100 pounds, you got a dime. If you picked, you know, uh, 200 pounds, you got 20 cents. If you pick, you know, 300 pounds, you get 30 cents a day. And we're talking a day, which is from sunup till sundown. You are out there working. Maybe 30 cents a day you're making. And granted, inflation was lower back then and, you know, money went a little bit further. But think about it, dude. You're working 12, 16 hours. You're bringing in 30 damn cents a day. That's, you know, a sharecropper sharecropper did that. A tenant farmer's a little bit different. You know, tenant farmers uh, were basically renters, and they would be sectioned off, like, in that area, a 40-acre plot, and they would be responsible for their own labor, their own seed, all that stuff, and then they would sell their crops, and uh, they would give the landowner 25% of the profit. That doesn't sound like that bad a deal until you factor in. They had to pay for their labor. So if they hired somebody to help them out, they had to, you know, cover their labor. They had to pay for their animals. They had to do their seed, all that stuff. And if that crop failed on you, well, you're still owing the landlord some damn money. You know, I mean, it was, you know, it was a step up from being a sharecropper. It still wasn't much. That's one of the reasons why you had such large families, you know, in the South back then. Because if I've got a tenant farm and I've got my 40 acres and all that stuff, if I've got kids to work it, well, I don't need to hire any labor. You know, I put my kids to work. I might need it. I'll need the labor while they're younger. But when they get older, I can start using them. You know, even when you're little, you can go out and, you know, slop the hogs, feed the chickens, bring the water in because they ain't have indoor toilets and all that stuff. You had a pump, you know. If you're lucky and fancy, you had a pump at the kitchen sink. Most of them had a pump in the yard. And you had to prime it, pump your water for the day for you and for the animals. Because you had to take care of the animals too. So there's a lot of damn water being pumped. And, uh, 
you know, the younger kids could do that. They'd carry buckets. And when they got older, they started putting them out in the fields to help, you know, bring in, you know, the crop, which back then in that area, cotton was the big one. I mean, that's all it was. You'd be chopping or picking or, you know, planting cotton. It's what your life revolved around back then. It's tough life. And uh, as such, because of everything going on with the Depression and uh, with World War II and everything, you know, folks had to entertain themselves. And the easiest way to entertain themselves was sit around and tell stories. And uh, they had some hair-raising stories, you know, especially my great-grandmother. She had some really good stories. I don't remember them too good. I was uh, five or six when she passed away. She's a great lady, though. But And she wouldn't tell, like, the little, little kids the really good stories. You know, she saved that for the adults. But they would tell stories. And um, a lot of those stories, you know, of course, were around the little communities that they lived in and stuff. And in that Bristow community, and there's nothing left of Bristow now. There's absolutely nothing left. There's no, you know, not even foundations really left of anything that was in that community. There are some, if you go back, there's a hunting club that owns a lot of land back there. And uh, you can go back in those woods. I used to go back there because uh, one of, you know, our relatives, another family related to us, there you go, they owned a lot of land back then, or back there when I was a kid. So we used to go back there a lot. They sold it off, and uh, now a hunting club owns all that. But if you get back in them woods, you can find some foundation work and, you know, some really cool stuff like that. But the rest of it, you know, as soon as, you know, uh, World War II is over and prices started dropping and wages started coming up, you know, and the industry really kicked in, they started getting tractors and combines and replacing the, you know, labor, uh, human labor with, you know, machines. So, you know... There was no need to divide your, you know, property up <clears throat> into 40-acre plots anymore and pay those people and house those people because you supplied them a house. Might not have been a very good house, but you supplied them a house. Well, now all those house places, you know, as soon as, you know, the guy, I'm using that you know too much again. As soon as uh, industry and technology caught up and that farmer could afford combines and tractors, stuff like that. Well, where those houses were, that's still prime farmland. And you figure maybe an acre, you know, for a house and this little yard and all the outbuildings, because you had to have a smokehouse, you had to have a barn, had to have, you know, corn crib, all that stuff. That stuff takes up space. So you figure average the yard area was about an acre, and then they had like 39 acres they would farm on. Well, every acre in that area of country is precious as farmland. So as soon as technology caught up and they did away with the tenant farming system, they did away with all the buildings associated with it, turned that back into farmland. So finding anything is impossible now because it's been, you know, tore down and plowed over so many times there's nothing left. The spots where they were, of course, still exist. But the houses, all that stuff don't. But anyways, wrapping back around the story, you know, they gather around the schoolhouse or the church, you know, which uh, were like the community centers back then. And, uh, you know, they swap stories. They tell, you know, st- gossip and rumors. It, those are nothing new. Social media and journalism today have really uh, accentuated that horrible aspect of humanity 
as far as, you know, unfounded rumors and everything else, making it out there and all that stuff. It was still going on back then. It's just those stories didn't make mainstream like they do now. But they'd sit around, gossip, and, you know, have, you know, like lunchbox socials and stuff where people bring food and they'd have a dance and all that stuff. They'd swap stories about, you know, uh, farming and everyday life, and ghost stories would come into play. And uh, the cool thing about that area is that, number one, if you were a lazy ghost hunter, it's like the best place in the world to go because, like, every ghost, every haunted area is, like, right off a dirt or gravel road. They're farm roads now. Not like in Missouri and Texas where it's marked farm road. You know, they're just uh, little gravel roads and dirt roads that go through, you know, this maze of farming country. And uh, you, you can tell where the houses or you, if you, I can't even talk tonight. If you know people that knew where the houses and all that stuff were, then you can go out there and, uh, you know, sit in your damn car and, you know, take EVPs and everything else. And uh, it's just really, really neat. It's a lost piece of American history. That whole kind of society, that whole kind of living is. And uh, we need to remember a little bit more. But wrapping back around again, how many times am I going to say this in the podcast? But in that little area, I know of probably 10 ghost stories. Some of them are kind of mundane. Some of them are really, really good. Uh, Mundane are like the everyday people, you know, that died. And you'll see them coming through, you know, walking or something like that. Uh, the really, really good ones, and there's a bunch of them. I'm about to get into those. I know you're thinking it's been 30 damn minutes. He's finally getting to a ghost story. But um, my favorite ones in that area are about this farmer. And he was a landowner back during the Depression. And uh, he'd hired, you know, homeless people, hobos, you know, that hop freight, you know, put them to work a little bit. And... Uh, no, but yeah, he was a very respected member of the community. I'm not going to say his name or where he's buried at because, you know, people don't need to go out there, you know, and tear stuff up. But after he died, they were tearing down, you know, his house and his barn and all that stuff. And under the barn, they found seven bodies. <clears throat> and those seven bodies were more than likely, they didn't prove it, they, it's pure speculation, but those seven bodies were more than likely people that had worked for him. They were hobos. Nobody would miss them. So instead of paying them, he'd kill them, bury, bury them under his barn. Now, this is where the, st- the story's already pretty creepy. I mean, how fucked up do you have to be to hire somebody during the Depression? This person's having a hard enough life. They have no family. They have no job. They have no money. They're freaking homeless. They come to you to get a job. They work their ass off for you, and you freaking kill them and bury them under your barn. I mean, that's kind of messed up to begin with. But to make it... Even more interesting, after he died for years, you would see a big ball of light come up from where that barn floor was, travel across country, and disappear straight into his damn headstone. Now, this is an actual fact. Arkansas State University heard about it back in the 50s. It's either 50s or early 60s, I don't remember. But they did an article on it and uh, said it was swamp gas. Swamp gases were, you know, what caused that light to do that. Ordinarily, I'm not going to rule it out. I'm more of a debunker 
when it comes to paranormal stuff. I think you have to be to maintain your obje your objectivity. But to me, the thing is that it would come up out of the ground where this barn was, travel about five miles down the dam or across the damn country, and disappear straight into his damn headstone. I do not believe that's a coincidence. I do not believe that is a natural occurrence caused by swamp gas. I think personally it's, you know, those seven dead pissed off guys going to have a chat with him at his damn grave. And uh, like I said, this is documented in, uh, I believe it, it was the Jonesboro Sun back in either the mid to late 50s or the early 60s. I found the article clipping once, and I had a copy of it. I don't know where the hell it is. I was looking for it before I started doing the podcast. I can't find it. I don't know where the hell it is. But I'm telling you, it, it's true. I never saw it personally. Never did. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and say I saw it. But I can tell you, when you go to the cemetery this guy's buried in, and it's way back in the middle of friggin' nowhere. If you don't know where the cemetery is, you're not going to find it. But when you go in there, number one, it's really old cemetery. I mean, you got two Civil War soldiers buried there. You got a Union lieutenant in one corner and a Confederate corporal buried in another corner. And uh, you got some other people buried in there. I'll tell you the story about one of them here in a minute. But this guy... His grave is the, by far the biggest. It's a really, at its time, it was a really, really cool, like, uh, rock fence that was around his plot. And then, you know, a huge tombstone in the middle of it with his name and all that. Um, when you go out there, I don't care what time of day it is. I've been out there. I've been going out there my whole life. But whenever you go out there, that cemetery, and yes, it's old. It's overgrown. Nobody really takes care of it anymore. So it's a little bit creepy when you go out there anyways. And you better watch out for, for water moccasins because you're not too far from the Black River. And they got some of the biggest damn moccasins out there I've ever seen in my life. Huge. But cottonmouths, water moccasin. If you're from the South, you know what they are. If you're not, look them up. But um, so, I mean, it's a little bit creepy to a lot of people when you go out there anyways because it's all grown up and it's cemetery and it's off the beaten path and blah, blah, blah. But when you get near his grave, man, I'm telling you, you just get this feeling, just a really creepy feeling when you go near his grave. It's, it's an undeniable feeling. You're, it's cold by his grave all the damn time. Doesn't matter. It can be 110 degrees outside. You get near his grave, it's at least 10, 15 degrees cooler, and that's using an actual thermometer. And, yes, there are some trees around, but when you shoot to the grave next to him, which is still under the trees, and you shoot his grave, you're getting a 15-degree drop right there in that one spot. It's, it's friggin' creepy, man. And uh, then when you go to where his old house was and all that stuff, during day, it's now farmland, you know, So there's, and there's nothing left of it. The only thing that was left was a big old tree stump. They moved that, so now it's getting kind of hard to find. But for years, a big old tree stump where this big old cottonwood that was in his front yard was, uh, you go out there during the day, of course, nothing. You go by there at night, I'm telling you, it, it gets, you just have this really weird feeling, man. Really, really weird feeling. Uh, it's just, I don't know how to describe it. You, you just want to get the hell out of there real quick. You know, even though you're in an open Delta farmland environment and you're on a dirt road and you're in the middle of friggin' nowhere, you just have this feeling that you need to get the hell out of there real quick. 
I don't know how to describe it, but obviously he was serial killer. Also, in this little area, there was another serial killer. I, I can't, if you do the research, you'll find this one easy. Uh, he was a veterinarian and he killed several children and adults in that area. And uh, this back at the same point in time when this other guy was operating. So you're in a little town that now has a population of probably 3,000 people, right? The area back then probably had a little bit more, maybe 4,500. We'll just give it 4,500. Sounds good. <clears throat> you know, because you got Nolan up the road, Pocahontas, then the little communities around there, Bristow, Clear Lake, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll give them a population boom of about 1,500 and say max in that area back then, there were about, you know, 4,500 people. You've got two serial killers operating in this tiny area at the exact same time. Now, serial killer is anyone who's killed more than three people. Both these men killed more than three people. The farmer killed uh, seven, and this veterinarian, I can't remember how many he killed, operating in this tiny little area of about 4,500 people. I mean, think about the odds of that. <laughs> the odds are astronomical. It shouldn't have happened. Uh, like I said, I'm not going to go in detail. Uh, the veterinarian's grave is on private property. So if anyone does do the research to find out who this guy is, stay the hell away from the private property where his gravestone is. Show the people there the respect, you know, that they deserve. They own the property. They probably didn't want the fucking headstone to begin with. It probably came with the property. What are you going to do? It's a grave. You can't do nothing to it. The other guy... I'll just tell you, even if you find out his name, which I'm not going to reveal on here, you'll never find where he's buried at because yeah, you've got to know that area. Now, if you're from that area, you might be able to figure it out. But if you're not, you're not going to find him. I'm not worried about that. But I'm still not going to give his name out by the off chance that somebody will find his grave because his is completely unprotected. And here's the deal. He was never trying convicted for it. Yes, seven bodies were found under the barn. It was after he died Somebody else could have killed those people. He might not have known about it. Now, do I believe that? No, I don't. But there's always that slim chance that he was innocent. And in saying that, it's not fair to tell people about him and then them go find his grave and fuck it up if he didn't do anything. If he did do something between him and God, God's more capable of handling it. And if he didn't do anything, I don't want him disturbed. But, you know, that's the way that goes. So that's one of them right there. Uh, another one involves my great-grandfather's first husband, or first wife, I'm sorry, first wife. And uh, her name was Ollie Hendon. And the reason I'm putting her name out there is because no one is really sure where Ollie's buried at now or her son, Ben. No one, remember, no one alive today remembers where they're buried. I know the cemetery they're buried in, but they don't have headstones. They never got a headstone marker. So her and that 10-year-old boy are now buried and nobody knows exactly where at. And it's really sad. Uh, I don't know much about Ollie. I don't know anything about Ollie really. Anyone who knew her personally has been dead for a long time. Granted, she's not a blood relative, but you know, it's just a sad thing. You know, when somebody passes away, especially a child and you know, within 20 years of their passing, most people don't even know where they're friggin' buried at. 
it's infuriating to me. People were different back then. You have to judge people in the context of the times in which they lived. You can't judge them by moral standards of today. You just can't. Life back then was more focused on the present, focused on survival. They didn't really have the luxury of looking at things like we do now. And those are the people, you know, quite frankly, we owe everything to because they built this country. I'm not going to dive any more into that, but we have to remember that when judging the actions of people in the past, we have to look at the context of their time period. You know, everybody, we will eventually be judged the same way. There will be generations in the future that look back at us and say, how fucked up were those people for doing what they're doing? We're doing the best we can, just like they did. We make mistakes. We screw up. You try to move forward and correct it with the next generation. But anyways, <clears throat> Ollie uh, was crossing the street, and uh, actually she was at her house and started hemorrhaging and was trying to cross the dirt road to get to her neighbor's house, who uh, their last name was Green, and she died in the middle of the dirt road. And for years after that, you know, up until the last certified sighting of her that I know of was when I was up there a few years ago, I was looking into ghosts and ghost story stuff like that. And I was talking to a local historian and he told me that the very last certified haunting or sighting of her was back in the mid eighties. And these kids were driving down that dirt road. They were probably doing some stuff they shouldn't have been doing and uh, almost hit her because she was crossing the road. And then, you know, right when they got to where they were going to hit her, she just disappeared. <clears throat> so the kids get out of the car. They look around. There's nothing there. They flip out, get back in the car, leave, talk to their parents, come to find out people have been seeing that since she passed away. Uh, the Greens who lived in the house across the street from her, I uh, can't remember the boy's name, but his bedroom window overlooked the street. And he said for years after she died, you know, while he was growing up, he would see her coming from where the old house was because they tore the house down not long after she died and he'd see what he supposed to be her, you know, white form coming across the road and disappearing halfway across the street. He said it just got to the point where at night he didn't open his, you know, uh, curtains. He didn't look out the window because he didn't want to see it anymore. But uh, I've gone out and done some EVPs there. I've never gotten anything good i've got a bunch of them that i still have to listen to from my last trip up there yeah maybe i'll pick up something who knows but i've always kind of felt bad about that and uh then you have a little 10 year or not 10 year old but you, you see a little boy probably guesstimated to be about 10 years old that uh walks along the levees out there he hadn't been seen in a long time but there for a while Several people saw him, and all he would do was at morning, you'd see him walking along the levees, and uh, he would disappear. He'd be, he'd be gone. <clears throat> no one's seen him in a while. Another haunting you have over there was uh, took place because of a murder, if you want to call it that. It was more of self-defense, but still a homicide. But uh, long story short, there was a family named the Roses. They were holding a like little party in a house that their dad owned and some other guys, I'm not going to say their names because this family is still prominent in that area and it's their family business. I'm not going to put it out, but they came over and started some trouble and 
one of the bigger guys wanted to jump on one of the smaller Rose guys, and the Rose guy stabbed him and killed him. And uh, what one of the things they were doing was they caused the whole thing <clears throat> was they were standing outside throwing rocks onto the tin roof. It was a new tin roof, and when the Rose guys came out and asked them to stop, words got changed, somebody got stabbed and killed. Uh, my grandmother actually lived in that house, <clears throat> you know, after this a long time after the murder actually took place. I'm not going to call it a murder. Self, it was a killing. We're just going to put it like that. Self-defense. That's how it was ruled. That's what it is. But um, she said at night you could still hear rocks hitting the tin roof, you know, and coming down. It's a very distinctive sound when a rock hits, you know, tin roof. And she said you'd hear that all night in there and it was a creepy place even during the day now i've been out there at night now it's again farmland it's right next to a damn you know water pump that pumps water you know into a uh, rice field now <clears throat> and uh, i've been out there at night and i long time ago and we're talking this is like two in the morning and i'm out there and i've got you know my little camera and all that stuff set up in the middle of the damn road because nobody's coming out there. And, uh, you know, just recording, make sure I don't step on damn snake. And uh, as what happens most time, I didn't get jacked that I could see or hear at that moment. I was out there for about an hour. I filmed. I did some, you know, recordings. And the way I do my recordings and stuff, here's the deal, and this is just my personal opinion. If you're going into paranormal research and you want to start doing it. Uh, an investigation is an investigation, first off. An investigation is a search for fact. That's all it is. You are trying to get the facts of an incident that either has or may have taken place. So in order to do that, you have to make your evidence as concrete as friggin' possible, as credible as friggin' possible. It means you go out there, you check the area out. If, you, if you're going on private lane, you get permission to go out there first and foremost. Once you're out there, scout around a little bit. You know, go out there a couple of times before you actually do your investigation. Check, see if there's highline wires. If there's highline wires, that could affect your EMF readings and everything else. Look for highline wires. Look for machinery. You know, like that water pump. It might kick on at 3 in the morning. If it kicks on at 3 in the morning, I don't know what it is. I'm going to chalk that up in the back of my mind to being something that it shouldn't be. Is there a road or a railroad close by? What time does the train run? You know, all that stuff you need to take into consideration and corn or, you know, seal the area off as much as you can before you go out there to make sure nobody's coming out there making noise while you're filming. <clears throat> and the next thing I'm going to tell you right now, what a ghost is supposed to be, as we know it, is the basic, um, the essence of a human being who was once alive, right? They can still think. They can still do all that stuff. <clears throat> They're not stupid, in other words. So if I go out and I'm going to do an EVP, the only thing I need to do is to do a sound check at the beginning. You know, testing, testing, one, two, three, testing, testing. Once I play that back, rewind it, erase, hit record, all I need to do is say, if anyone has anything they need to say, talking to this device, it will hear you. I need to shut the fuck up at that point. Why? Because there's nothing more annoying than hear somebody out there doing an EVP and they're talking the entire damn time. 
How the hell is anything else supposed to friggin' talk if you're out there mumbling and making noise and all that stuff? Doesn't do any good. That doesn't hurt, you know, do your little intro. If you need talk, talk in this. And a few minutes later, you know, say, you know, is there anybody out here? Whatever. But keep whatever you're saying short, sweet, to the point. Get it over with. Let the recording device do its job. Don't get in front of your video cameras. It's okay when you first start off to get in front of it. Do your little presentation if you want to. But after that, keep yourself and everybody else away from the video camera. It can't pick up anything if you're standing the fuck in front of it. Just like the voice recorder can't pick up shit if you're fucking talking over it. Yeah, when you're out there, and this is why most people do this, they're scared. And there's nothing wrong with it. You're trying to communicate with, you know, a, you know, a ghost, a dead entity, a human who was once alive. It's creepy. You know, it's, you know, we're all going to be like that one day. So yeah, it's thinking about, you know, your eventual demise and you hear the stories associated with ghosts and all that stuff and what they can do and what they can't do and all this other crap. If you're that scared, you don't need to be out there doing an investigation. You just don't. You need to stay at home, you know, and not worry about it. If you're going to do an investigation, go out and do it correctly so that what you get is credible. What you get is legit. There's enough idiots in this field to begin with. <clears throat> and not saying they're deliberate idiots. Idiot might even be harsh. But you get people who go out there, they freak out the slightest sound, they automatically assume it's a ghost, they put it on film, and they post it on YouTube, and it's like, oh, we got this ghost. You didn't get shit, man. You got nothing. You look like a fucking idiot. You know? And the other thing I'm going to say is never go alone. Never go alone when you do ghost hunting trips. I viol violate this rule all the time. I'm not going to lie to you. I violate it all the time. But you shouldn't. You should always have somebody with you and always let somebody know where you're going. I do do that. I will let, you know, multiple people know where I'm going, what time I'm going, how long I expect to stay, etc. when I go out and do any kind of a hunt. Because you never know, man. And it's not necessarily something sinister. You could fall and break a leg. At least they know where to come fucking look for you at. You know? But anyway, when I was out there, I uh, got done I pat my gear up, I get home, I'm listening to the audio, and I heard rocks on a tin roof. That was creepy as hell. I mean, just really creepy. I got to run through a couple more of these stories. I've taken too long on those stories, but, <clears throat> you know, uh, another story is, and this is the first time I've ever heard this, a headless horseman where the horse doesn't have a head. Yeah, that's right. There is a you know, goes for lack of a better term that rides up over the levee or over the river bank at Hoover's Landing and crosses a dirt road and disappears on the other side. And, uh, yeah, the horse doesn't have a head. The rider's fine from what everybody says. The damn horse don't have a head. This was cited multiple times back in the 1940s by some pretty prominent people. Yeah, some of them were kind of fucked up at the time. Like the guy who drove his car into Black River. I'm not going to say his name because his family's still there and I don't want that embarrassing story getting out. But he drove his car into the Black River and had to get out and come back. He was a little bit under the influence at the time. But there were other people, many other people, prominent people that have seen that. Uh, last time I know for a fact that it was cited was in the early 2000s by a guy who uh, uh, worked in a factory in uh, Pocahontas. 
and he lived, I think, over in Porsche. So he's coming down the back roads, you know, to get to work. And he saw it. He didn't crash or anything, but, you know, he saw it and he talked to somebody and they made a post about it. That's uh, the last reference I've heard of that, you know, going down. Again, I've never seen it. Uh, let's see. There's in that cemetery I was telling you about where the farmer serial killer is buried at. And, uh, of course, Ollie and uh, her son, Ben, where they're buried at. Uh, Ollie's brother's also buried there. And uh, he died when the city jail burned to the ground and he was in the drunk tank. Uh, he's a World War I vet, very nice headstone. Uh, I've never heard anything about it personally, but other people have told me that where the old city jail used to be, you'll sometimes hear screaming and stuff at night. And um, in that cemetery sometimes at night when you're driving by, you'll hear, you know, like screaming and stuff. I've, I've never experienced any of those. I'm not going to say they're true or false. You know, people have said it. It very well could be. And you got to remember, this area now has no people. It's got no power either. You know, no power grids or anything like that. So whatever's going on out there, it's not going to be a very easy document. There's nobody that lives back there anymore to see it, you know. Uh, another one, and I, I saw this house when I was a kid. It was a beautiful old house. I've got about seven minutes left of recording. Uh, a doctor lived there, and to make a long story short, he went to Emboden back in the 40s to uh, you know check on a patient. He was coming back, had a car wreck, and he died. Well, he had this signal set up with his wife where he would knock on, you know, do a specified knock on the window so she'd come let him in the front door when he had to make those late runs. And he, you know, she heard the knock, went to the door. Nobody was there. Next morning, sheriff came by and told her, you know, husband died in a car accident. Well, for years, until this place burned down in the early 2000s, you couldn't keep anybody in it. And uh, the reason was because they would still hear the knocking going on. Beautiful old house. Uh, like I said, it burned in the early 2000s. Uh, I've gone out there a couple of times a night to the old house place because it's right there on the road. And uh, I've done a little bit of EVP work. I've never gotten anything out of it. And that's the thing, man. If you go out to do ghost hunting, ghost stories, all that stuff, you're going to fail more often than you succeed, man. Let's just be honest about it. You're going to fail a lot more than you succeed. Uh, you, you probably It's like sales, man. Uh, you get baseball is a better example. You get three out of 10, you're hitting 300. You're doing really, really good for paranormal stuff. Not every trip is going to get you anything. Not every trip, not, e not even every other trip is going to get you something. You know, it's, that's why it's so special when it actually does happen. You do get something. You're like, I can't debunk this. This might actually be legit. But, you know, getting back to the ghost stories, stuff like that. There's a couple more in that area. Uh, there was a guy who hung himself on the bridge because of the depression. He went bankrupt, hung himself on a bridge there. And uh, you can, according to uh, local history, you can still uh, hear him sometimes. So that's good. You'll still see him and hear him uh, sometimes over there. Trying to think, I know there's there's one, and I can't freaking remember what the story was anymore. I'm drawing a blank here. This is more a how-to class than it was actual ghost stories. I've hit on some ghost stories, 
but I haven't really delved into any really, really good ones, I guess. Uh, here's one. Damn, I ain't got much time. Uh, long story short on this one. Back in the 20s, there was a landowner knocked up this, you know, young daughter for one of the tenants and all that stuff. Well, he's married, and uh, he took her back into the slough area and uh, killed her, disposed of the body. Uh, they found her a few days later. Of course, you know, sheriff wrote it up as, you know, a suicide. Everybody in the country kind of knew what happened. Nobody could prove it. Well, I can tell you this firsthand. You go back to where she died at. I know exactly the spot where they found the body. And, you know, pretty sure where he did the deed is probably the same spot they found the body. And uh, you can go back in there at night and every once in a while you will hear something. You know, I mean, it's creepy as shit. You'll, I, I've, I've heard myself. I've been down there. And, uh, you know, doing a voice recording, whatever, and, you know, heard like a girl's giggle, stuff like that, and there ain't nothing around. And ironically enough, I've never gotten that on tape, ever, not once. And I've had recording stuff going when I've heard it. And that's, that's when you know you found something. When you can hear it or see it with your eyes and ears, but you don't see or hear nothing on tape or video, you've got something there. Anyways, we're at 57 minutes. Tell me what you thought about this, guys. Like I said, this is more of a kind of how-to type deal. Uh, I will, I'm going to do a part two to this because some of these stories need to be revisited. I think later in the week I'll do a part two to it, and uh, hopefully you know, you guys will get a kick out of it. I hope you enjoyed this one. I really do. Uh, feel free to hit me up on Twitter, at Caesar Podcast Twitter. Uh, look us up on Facebook. Interesting stuff on uh, Facebook. And um, I don't really use Facebook that much. Hit me up on Twitter or, e- or email me, interestingstuffpodcast at gmail.com. I hope everybody's doing great. Thank you so much for listening and for, uh, you know, spending your time with me. Time's precious, and I appreciate every one of you that chooses to spend some of it listening to my crap. So, uh, you know, until... Next time, I want you to be smart. I want you to be safe. I don't want you to do any stupid shit. Take care. Mess up the audio again. Night, folks. Hey folks, welcome to this week's episode of Interesting Stuff, the podcast that's about nothing and really has no body. Uh, how'd everybody's week go? As I'm recording this, it's like 8.24 in the morning, May 14th. You're going to hear it the same day. I don't know what the weather's like where you guys are at, but here in my little corner of Alabama, man, it's nice. It's still a little bit chilly outside. It's probably about 50 degrees outside, but man... It is just a beautiful day. The clouds are gone. There's no friggin' rain. The sun's coming out. I'm looking out my window, watching my yard, watching the birds flying around, all that stuff. Gorgeous. I'm going to have to figure out something to do today. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to wind up going out in the yard, doing some yard work, stuff like that. Uh, Sitting here with my dogs, you know. (laughs) 
Uh, sorry, it's been so long since I've done a podcast. Uh, the last one I did it was about a month ago. It's when you know my good friend and one of the most staunch supporters I had as far as doing podcasts and stuff went. You know, Sandy Pataki died, and <clears throat> I just haven't been in the mood for it. You know, and uh, you know some other stuff going on. Uh, my office is now occupied by a friend of mine. Him and his wife had some legit issues related to COVID. They lost their jobs and all that stuff. And as you guys know, my office was a separate big building, basically a house on my property. So they've moved in there and taken over. And I had to, you know, move all my stuff out and split it between, you know, like my basement and my tractor shed, which I did a lot of early podcast at was in my tractor shed. I usually, I do that a lot sometimes when the weather's nice, I'll go out in the tractor shed and just, you know, cut a podcast or whatever. But now with them living in, you know, that place and I'm glad to have him here. He's one of my oldest friends. It's great to have him and his wife up here. You know, they've the way my property's set up, I've got like my house and then about half an acre and then their house is, you know, right down on the edge of the road and all that stuff. So we still got enough separation. They got their own little yard and everything. They got their dogs back there. But we're close enough we can actually hang out for the first time in like 20 years. You know, we can just hang out, you know, and catch up and all that stuff because he never left back home. And I, you know, of course, moved around and all that stuff. So it's cool to have him down here. But anyways, <clears throat> got rambling on that one. Um, tractor shed's full of stuff that used to be down there. Uh, my basement's full of stuff that used to be down there. Uh, my wife's office, I'm slowly starting to take over a little bit. You know, not trying to take over it completely because, you know, she needs her space to do, you know, her schoolwork and all that stuff. But, you know, I still need a place to do this. I'm actually recording this one in my living room. My dogs are looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? You know, they're not used to the uh, podcast thing. They're used to me being on the phone because I am on the phone a lot. Uh, and my wife says, you're like teenage girl. And I am, you know, I've got a lot of friends. I'm retired. You know, it's nice to call and check on my friends and talk to them. You know, it's something you kind of take for granted when you're working and doing all that stuff is, you know, the friends that you have that you see at work and all that stuff every day. You hang around with them and everything. The ones that are further away, you've got to make time to talk to them. You've got to, you know, be able to, you know, say, okay, well, my work schedule is this, that, this, that, whatever. You know, now that I am retired, I don't have to do that. So I can stay in better touch with those friends, you know, and I can bug them, you know, whenever the hell I want to. It's great. One of my favorite things to do is to, like, call them at weird hours and just be like, you know, hey, how you doing, bud? You know, I know they got to work. They know that I know they have to work. They still answer the phone because they love me, and I love them too. And, uh, you know, yeah, I'm a little bit of a jerk as far as that goes, but it's so much fun. It is so much fun. But anyways, I hope y'all's week went great. I hope uh, from the time from my last podcast, this one went great. And uh, trying to figure out what I'm going to talk about today. I already have an idea what I'm going to talk about. A while back when I was on another platform, Podbean, uh, I did a uh, podcast about this topic, and it was actually, surprisingly, like the biggest hit podcast I had. Everybody friggin' loved that episode, and I was just like, okay, well, maybe I'll do revisit that topic in the future, because to me, the first one didn't turn out that good. I was really disappointed with it. I thought there was, you know, I just didn't think it flowed right, but everybody loved it, and, uh, you know, now 
in today's times. I hear a lot of people talking about this, so I figure I'd dive into it just a little bit and, uh, you know, kind of go over it. And what we're going to talk about, with all that being said, is apocalyptic situations, man. You hear a lot of people talking, you know, inflation's rising, you got the COVID virus out there, who knows what other viruses are going to spin off. You've got, uh, you know, zombies. They're not quite as big as they were, you know, back when like the Walking Dead, Gen Z and all that kicked off, you know, about 10 years ago. But it's still a topic that people like to talk about. I guess humans are just fascinated with, you know, the world coming to an end. I don't know what our deal is with that. And uh, they're fascinated with apocalyptic scenarios. And, you know, it's kind of, I can understand, you know, you watch the TV shows, you're like, wow, you know, these guys are they're tough and they're rugged and they're making a living. Yeah, I don't want anything to fucking do with that shit, man. You know? Our world's not perfect by far. It is not. But you'd be surprised, and this comes from somebody who has lived in times and areas and all that stuff where you don't have the luxury of running water and taking a shower whenever you want to. And uh, just the little internet thing, you know, stuff like that, that we all take for granted. In a situation like that, that's all freaking gone. You can forget about it. You're not going to have a hot shower whenever you want to. You're not going to have hot water to do your dishes. You're not going to have a store to go to when you get hungry. You know? And then we have to get into personal hygiene, man. Because let me tell you, people go without deodorant, without brushing their teeth, without taking a shower. Yeah, the funk's going to be real, bro. It is going to be real. You're doing the four-day underwear at that point, you know. You're wearing it inside out. You're wearing it right side. You're flipping it around. You wear the front and the back and the back and the front and all that stuff. Keep that underwear going for four or five days. I knew guys in the military did that stuff. That's why it's called the four-day underwear. You start off wearing it the right way. Next day, you turn it around. The next day, you turn it inside out. And then the day after that, you turn it the other way around. However you want to freaking do it. But yeah, I knew guys that did that shit. And yeah, I never did do it. I was always, you know, two things you got to change out, man. I might, you know, and this, we're talking about like when I was in the army and stuff and you're in the field for a while, maybe you're out on patrol or something like that, you know, for a few days and you're limited as to what you can pack in there. But man, let me tell you something. I can wear a t-shirt, even if it's a nasty, dirty t-shirt, I can wear that thing. I can suck it up, wear it for a few days. I can wear the, the BDUs, which is what we had back then. I can wear the nasty ones for a couple of days. I, I can deal with it. But man, my socks and my damn underwear going to be clean. And if I can, I'm going to pack a couple extra t-shirts in there. You know, so there's at least something clean up against me. Uh, I, I just, you know, I was one of those guys that roll out to the field. You know, if we were out there for, you know, let's say 14 days, I'm bringing like fucking 28 days of socks. I'm making sure I got socks, you know, I'm bringing a pair of underwear for every day we're out there. And if I can squeeze it in, I'm bringing a damn t-shirt for every day we're out there. And yeah, the army didn't issue you that much stuff. God forbid to go out and buy it yourself at clothing sales, but you know, hell, I wanted to be clean. But anyways, as someone who has seen the funk from like field problems and actual deployments and stuff, yeah, the funk is real folks and it is bad. It is something you don't want any part of. Then you have to get into other aspects of it. You know, we've kind of hit on the food. Where are you going to get your food at, man? Walmart's closed. Ain't no Walmart no more. 
Yeah, you go in there and raid it. But any meat, stuff like that, is going to be bad in a few days. How are you going to keep this stuff going? How are you going to stay alive and all that? That's kind of what we're going to dive into on this episode, talking about apocalyptic scenarios. And we're going to start off with the biggest threat in an apocalyptic, there we go, scenario. What is the biggest threat in an apocalyptic, god darn it, scenario? What do you think it is, man? You think it's starvation? You think it's dehydration? You think it's disease? You're wrong on all those counts. The biggest threat in an apocalyptic scenario is other human beings. Plain simple, man. Because there's going to be other people that live. You're not going to be the only person that survives something like that. So your biggest threat, first and foremost, are the other surviving or other survivors. Well, how do you negate those threats? Well, you know, the biggest thing is you can't make yourself look soft. You can't sit there and live in your little suburban community and all that stuff. And this is where people, this, these are things people don't think about. It's all about defense at this point in time. You know, you got to have a defendable position. What is a defendable position? A defendable position is something that preferably will have some good thick walls. It'll have a high ground advantage, meaning you're up above your, you know, uh, terrain. You're at a high point, like on a ridge line, a hilltop, something like that. Going to have some walls, preferably. If not walls, a really good sturdy fence. You're going to have roof access. So you can get on top there. You can look around, see what's going on around you. And most importantly, you're going to have more than one way in or out. And you see these movies where, you know, they got this stronghold set up and there's one way in, one way out. Well, that's friggin' great and wonderful, man, until something comes along that can block your access. Or until something comes along that is stronger than you are. Then you got no way out. You need more than one way in. Biggest thing. High ground, thick walls, fence, more than one way in, one way out. That's the first thing you have to look at. And that means that in order to find a location like this, you're probably going to have to leave your house behind. You're going to leave your house and a lot of your stuff is going to be behind. None of us like to think about that stuff. I've got a bunch of junk. I'm looking around my living room now. I got a lot of junk, man. It's my junk. I love it, but, you know, junk in a survival scenario, how much of this stuff would I really need? Would it be easy to leave? No, it would not be because you're sentimentally attached to this stuff. Like my big, my big ass TV over here, you know, my couch, which I friggin' love. I got like the coolest couch, man, you know. It's one of those couches where it's got the built-in cup holders, got the built-in, you know, armrest you can lay down. It's like the ends of it recline out and stuff. I mean, it's friggin' awesome. I love this couch. I would probably try to bring this couch with me, you know, or at least half of it. Maybe I could bring half of it. I'm not really sure. I would hate to leave my couch for somebody else to sit in. I would hate to leave my TV here for somebody to, like, even just look at, you know, and then you get into, you know, books and I'm looking at my guitars over here and stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of crap that has sentimental value to you. First and foremost, in a survival situation, you got to cut the clutter, man. All the clutter's got to go. If it doesn't have a life or death meaning to it, meaning can it defend you? Can it house you? Can it feed you? You don't need it. Or, and can it clothe you, of course. If it ain't one of those things, 
or teach you like a book, you don't need it. You got to leave it. So just using my house as an example, looking around my living room right now, what would I take with me? It's something you can all do yourselves. In the room you're sitting in right now, take a look around. Figure out, does it clothe me? Does it feed me? Does it defend me? Does it house me? Does it teach me? Five things. If it does not fit one of those five things, you don't friggin' need it. So look around this living room right here. Uh, yeah, not a lot here I would need to bring with me. I can't see really anything in here that I would need to bring with me. Yeah, so think about that. All the stuff in that room that you're in, chances are you're going to be leaving. Now, yeah, somebody else will probably come along. You don't need to be thinking about that. You need to be thinking about survival. So we cover what kind of location you want. We covered your own stuff, what you need to take with you. We've covered your biggest threat, which can be other people. Now we need to talk about other stuff, you know, that other stuff being, well, what do you do once you get there? You find that, you know, great location. It's got walls, it's got a fence, it's got a lot of ways in or out. And another thing. You don't want it to be in the middle of a city. Why don't you want it to be in the middle of a city? I'll tell you what. Urban areas get hit harder than rural areas do. You've got more people in urban areas. Therefore, you're going to have more chances to have an interaction with somebody that can be positive or negative. Because you have to look at it like that. Positive or negative. Chances are a situation like that is going to be mainly negative. So in order to avoid that... You want to get away from the city. How do you do that? Well, you're not going to be driving a damn car. That's for damn sure. Just think about it. Situation like that happens. Where's the best place to set up and wait for people? Because you're going to have, you know, quote unquote bandits at that point in time. You're going to have people that are making a living off robbing other people. What's the easiest way to do it, man? You stick to the road. If people are driving, they can only drive on damn road. So if I set up a roadblock... I'm going to get you when you come out. I'm going to get everything you own. Maybe even kill you. Who knows? So yeah, you can forget your dang cars, man. Your cars are useless. Unless you get out right when everything starts going to hell. You know, when they start saying evacuate and all that stuff. Because that will happen. You'll have, you know, orders coming down from your governor and National Guard, police, people like that. They're telling you it's time to go. You need to, you know, get out of town, blah, 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 whatever. You know, if you leave at that point in time, yeah, you're, you'll be able to take your car. But if you don't, if you wait and hunker down and, you know, ride it out for a little bit, taking your car is not the way to go. Because it can find, it restricts your movement. Plus, it's loud. They can hear it from a long ways off. And you got to have gas, you know. So your car, let's say you wait three days after the, State of emergency is declared and everybody's being evacuated. You wait three days, decide to leave. Uh-uh. No, nope. you're going to need to stick to whatever you can carry on your back and try to stay off the major roads because you don't want to be seen. Anyone you see at that point in time is a potential threat because there won't be any law and order at that point in time. There will be none. There won't be any cops. There won't be anybody that is there to protect you. You're going to have to protect yourself. 
travel at night. That way, your chance of being seen are slim to none. Travel back roads when possible. Travel through woods. Follow, get in a creek and follow the thing. Now, here's the problem. A creek, railroad tracks, something like that, will take you wherever you want to go. Railroad tracks are better because they're built up higher, so you can usually see around better. But it's a give and take. If I'm walking a ridge line or I'm walking on a railroad trestle, yeah, I've got a good view around me. I can see around me. Problem is, they can see me too. All they got to do is look up. They can see me when I can't see them. You know, you've seen these railroad trestles and, you know, all that stuff where they're up real high and you can see, you think the conductor in that train can see you when you're on the ground below? No, he can't. You can see him though, plain and simple. And you know where he's going. He's confined to that track. Well, if you're walking a trestle, you're kind of in the same boat. Someone can see you. Someone can hear you figure out, okay, well, he's walking this way. So he's going to stay on the track. He's going to keep walking that way. Move down the road a little bit, set up an ambush, take you out. Moving in creek, pretty much flip it around. Creeks are lower. So anyone up top can hear you and do the same thing. Set up a choke point, ambush, do whatever they need to do. So when you're moving, you've got to constantly be aware of your surroundings. You've got to pay attention to what's going on. You've got to grow eyes in the back of your head. You got to watch how you walk. You see on movies all the time, you people, especially the military ones, that's what gets on my nerves. I'll watch them and I'm watching these, you know, quote unquote soldiers, you know, going and they're moving out on a patrol or something like that. And I have no idea how to fucking walk. In order to walk quiet, you walk heel to toe. Never place all your weight down at once. You've got to learn to feel the ground beneath you. And when I say that, what I mean is you've got to be able to, as soon as your foot hits down just a little bit, you've got to be able to sense, okay, is there a stick here? Is there a rock here? You know, am I going to make noise by doing that? You put that heel down, slowly test your weight on it. Then you can roll down, you know, and keep, you know, moving from the heel to the ball of the foot to the toe, next foot over. You've got to learn how to walk properly. And it ain't like it is in the movies. Let me tell you something. When you're trying to cover like a field or go through the woods and stuff like that, and you want to move quietly, you want to move silently, it's not like in the movies where these guys are just like ghosts and they're creeping through. That takes years of practice. You're going to have to go slow. It might take you, you know, 10 hours to cover, you know, a fucking mile and do it proper to where you're not breaking sticks. You're not making a bunch of noise where people can hear you because certain things are, are giveaways, man. Cloth on branches makes a distinctive sound. If you're going through the woods and you're wearing cloth and you rub up against, you know, a stick or a tree or something like that, it's a very distinctive sound. You know, anyone who is familiar at all with nature is going to pick that sound out as unusual. That sound should not be there. The only way that sound is made is if a human is around, you know. Uh, walking, we covered. When you're walking, the best thing to have in a situation like that would be like hiking boots. They're tough. They're durable. They provide good support, you know, for your arches and all that stuff. 
And uh, you're going to need that. They're also a little bit clunky. So, again, practice your walking. You know, can you walk silently? Don't walk on the sides of your feet either. Walking on the sides of your feet will make noise. You've got to learn how to properly, you know, center yourself, heel, ball, toe, repeat. That's how you do it. Other things you got to look out for. Um, smoking. Smoking's a big one. And yeah, tobacco will eventually dry up. But at first, you know, there will be tobacco. Because you're going to have those scenarios like you see on the TV shows and stuff where you're walking and you come up on a convenience store and you break into it. And, oh my goodness, I've got all this stuff here and all this stuff. And, you know, raid it, loot it, whatever. So you'll have cigarettes. I'm a smoker. <clears throat> I'm not going to make any bones about it. But smoke carries especially if it's wet. If you're moving out, doing something like this, you do not need to be smoking. The cherry can be seen at night. The smoke will carry, especially a non-smoker will pick up on that smell in a heartbeat. It's a very distinctive smell. They're going to know somebody's around. Body odor will come back into play too. Because I can tell you, from being deployed, being in the field, going without shower for a long time, when you get around somebody who had showered, <clears throat> you could smell. You know, smell all kinds of stuff, man. You know, you could, you know, it got to where you could almost tell what kind of soap and shampoo they were using because your nose has become so desensitized to your own funk that it picks up on anything else that's out of the ordinary. You know, you'll be smelling somebody that's taking a shower and you're like, damn, you know, they smell, you know, like Irish Spring or whatever. And the same can be said for the other extreme. You know, somebody just reeks. Yeah, your nose desensitizes itself to your own funk, but it'll pick up on somebody else's funk. You know, so how do you com how do you combat that? You know, well, you don't want to wear the you don't want to use the fancy soap that got all the smell and stuff to it. You don't want to use a fancy shampoo that's got all the smell and stuff to it. The conditioner, you're not going to have a chance to use conditioner anyways. You know, sorry, ladies conditioner is going to be out the window. You want to find something plain, you know, plain old soap that really doesn't have a smell. Some kind of plain old shampoo that doesn't really have a smell. Deodorant. You want the non-scented deodorant. That's what you need because it's neutral. You're not going to get the funk, but it's not going to create this overpowering smell that someone else can smell if they're within, you know, 15, 20 feet of you. You don't want that kind of stuff, you know? I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff out there, and I'm just going off my head. You know, I didn't write this stuff down. I never write this stuff down. So uh, I don't know if this is any good, if it's helping or whatever. I hope it is. But that's the other thing. You know, learn how to move quietly. Learn how to move at night. Learn to pay attention to your surroundings. Oh, it's better to take your time in those kind of scenarios. Take your time. Again, if it takes you 10 hours to cross a mile, okay, well, you've, you're alive. No one's seen you. No one's gotten a hold of you yet. So, yeah, it took 10 hours to do a mile. Big deal. It's, it's nothing. It's, you know, re risk versus reward. You've got to be careful. Because the only reward you're going to get if you get seen is probably held up, you know, if not worse. 
So pay attention to that. Uh, and, and while you're moving, I mean, we covered like creeks, we covered, you know, railroad tracks and stuff, which are great ways to get around, you know, creeks go all over city, you know, rivers, stuff like that. They, they, every city, basically, if you follow a creek long enough, you're going to come upon some kind of civilization. If you follow a railroad track long enough, you're going to come upon some kind of civilization and they're safer than actually taking a road. Like I said, roads are the biggest no-no in this kind of situation because it's the path everybody's used to traveling. Everybody's used to, you know, when you when you go somewhere, in other words, you know what roads it takes to get there. You know, I go up to Main Street, I take a left, I go down to First Avenue North, I take a right, on Flint Street, I take a left. That's how you give directions. Well, in a situation like this, those roads, especially the major roads, are going to be a problem because major roads are going to attract people to them because they got businesses on them, they got residences on them, both of which will be looted. Guarantee you that. Plus, people will set up shop. You know, if I got two, three story buildings, I've got a great field of fire. I can sit up there, and watch when somebody comes in, light them up, take what they what I want off them. So instead of traveling Main Street and First Avenue North, maybe I need to travel Flint Street, which runs parallel to Main. I'm making these roads up. Runs parallel to Main Street. In other words, it's going in the same direction, but it's going to be a, a road that's less traveled, more of a residential. So at that point, I probably don't have as much of a chance of getting seen. So if I do have to get on a road, which you will, I mean, where are you going to get your supplies? You're going to have to go in town to get your supplies. So coming in town on a back road as opposed to coming out on a major road is a big deal. But avo- avoid roads as much as possible. You've got to learn how to read a compass. You've got to learn which pace count is. Pace count. We'll get to that. What is a pace count? Pace count is what we use in the military to figure out, just to put it in layman's terms, how many steps it takes for me to reach a mile. You know, how many steps does it take me to reach a mile? You want to do two kind of pace counts. You want to do one where you're actually walking on, you know, like a road for lack of a better term, nice, even terrain, figure out how many steps it takes you to do a mile on that terrain. Then you find rougher terrain, you know, it's got some hills, it's got some grass, stuff like that. Do you walk your mile in that? And once you figure out what your pace count is, you can determine how far you're traveling. That's very important you know, for you to be able to keep up with where you're going, how far, you you know, like from where I live, I want to go to Birmingham, for instance. Yeah, you know, it's the major city. Uh, The closest major, major city to me would be Huntsville or Birmingham. Take your pick. So let's say I'm going to Birmingham. Birmingham for me is about 60 miles, right? Okay. Well, I know it's going to take 60 miles and I know or to cover 60 miles, I'm going to have to take, you know, this many steps to do a mile. You know, you can kind of plot it out and figure out, okay, well, you know, let's say I'm going to use the best scenario. I'm going down, you know, 2059, walking in Birmingham, the interstate right there. All right, cool. Nice, flat, I'm on a road. So it's nice. It's, you know, 
not flat. It's got some hills on it, but you know, it doesn't have rough terrain on it because it's a friggin' road. So I'm going to do my pace count. I'll be able to keep track about how far I've gone, you know, and another little tip trick to doing that kind of stuff is, you know, put something in like one of your pockets, like in your right pocket, put, you know, 60 rocks, you know, so that way when I hit a mile, I take a rock out of this pocket, I drop it in the other one, you know, do my pace count, you know, 1000 steps. Okay. I'm at a mile rock transfer over. Then I start my counting again, keep track of it. So that way, even if I do lose track with my counting, something distracts me, something comes up. I forget I'm on step number 298. Oh, well, I've still got a rough idea how far I've come because in my left pocket now I have, you know, 10 pennies or, you know, 10 rocks or, you know, whatever, you know, peas, beans, something like that, just to transfer over, you know, so I can kind of keep track of, you know, how far I'm going. And, uh, that's extremely important. Another thing you have to think about while you're walking, and you're using a compass because you're going to want to have a compass, you know, not on a, a situation like that. If I'm walking down the interstate, I'm not going to need a compass because I know exactly where I'm going to. But if I'm going across country, which is the way I would go in a situation like that, because I want to stay off the roads. Cross country is a whole lot harder than going on roads <clears throat> because cross country, you're in a rough terrain. It takes you more steps to get to a mile. It takes more energy to get to a mile. You know, and there's no signs marking, okay, well, you're 10 miles from Birmingham because I'm in the middle of friggin' woods right now. Situation like that, you got to have a compass. I know from where I live right now, Birmingham is southwest of me. So I need to walk to the southwest. All right, cool. If I keep walking southwest, I'm going to hit Birmingham. Okay, not a problem. Well, how do I make sure I'm going southwest? Especially if I'm in an area I don't know. Even if you're in an area you don't know and you're not used to walking through the woods, you can get lost really quick. You can think, okay, well, I'm going south. I'm not. I'm going north. It's easy to freaking get turned around in the woods. So you get you a map. Or not a map, but you get you a compass. And if you can't get a map, you get a map. Now, you're not going to have a military-grade map. You'll probably have like a, you know, freaking, you know, city map or a road atlas or something, but at least it's something that kind of points out, okay, this is where we're going. You know, it's not extremely useful for traveling on foot. It can give you a, a general idea where you're going. I would highly advise you have a road atlas with you. But, you know, that being said, I know to get from my house to get to Birmingham, I got to go southwest about 61 miles. Okay, not a big deal. Get me a compass. I start walking. Do my pace count. This is where your pace count really comes in important because after about every mile, I need to swap that compass over. If I'm right, whatever hand I'm carrying that compass in, I'm going to naturally drift that way. So if I'm holding that compass in my right hand the whole damn time, I'm going to drift off course to the right. Every mile, you need to when you put your bean in the other pocket, need to flip that compass over to the other hand. So it will pretty much more or less straighten you out and keep you on a straight path. <clears throat> Something very important. A lot of people that do land navigation do not know that little tip or trick. But yes, every mile, change hands that the compass is in. You've got to do it. If you don't, you can drift off quite a bit. 
And it's not that big a deal when you go into a city like Birmingham, which is, you know, big. It's a big town. But let's say I'm going to like, you know, hell. I've got like a specific place I'm going to, like a National Guard armory that is right here in this area. And I've never been there before. I know certain amount of miles this way, blah, blah, blah. And it's in a small town. Well, if I get too far off course, I'm going to miss any signs that say this is the small town of blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm going to miss all that stuff. I might make it to another town over. Or I might walk right past the town. So you got to change that compass over to keep you straight and on the narrow. So you can tell what, you know, definitively, I'm definitely going this way. You know, uh, other things you're going to have teach shelf that I don't really have time to talk about on here is how to shoot a back azimuth if you get lost. Uh, that's something very important. You need to look that up. I don't have the time to really go into detail on this. I'm just throwing out tips and ideas. Uh, trade goods, you know, tobacco. I don't care if they outlawed or not. Tobacco will always be a trade good. Medical supplies, stump, something as simple as band-aids and aspirin. Need to keep that around. You need to keep it for yourself too. Antibiotics are a must. And here's the thing about antibiotics. Yes, some are stronger than others, but an antibiotic is pretty much an antibiotic. So if you can get your hands on antibiotics, you need to keep them. How do you keep them fresh? How do you keep them from getting ruined and all that stuff? You need some more code. Same thing with your food. You know, with your food, I'm going to need to keep it cool. How am I going to keep this stuff fresh and good? Well, with pills, it's really not that bad. It's not that hard. If you find yourself a nice dark place and you put those pills up in there, yes, they have a shelf life, all that stuff, but pills will go a lot past the shelf life if they're in a cool, dark area. You know, same with your canned goods, same with your water. You want to put your water in a nice, cool, you know, covered area, you know, so it doesn't get your water. If you leave it out in the sun too long, believe it or not, even bottled water can go quote unquote bad, you know, it can put it in a nice cool area. You don't have anything to worry about. Same with your canned goods, same with, you know, any pills that you come upon, you know, and I'm not talking about the pills for fun. I'm talking about legitimate medical pills, aspirin, you know, Motrin, uh, antibiotics, stuff like that. You're going to need those things because ain't no doctors now. Won't be any doctors. You can't go to the doc in the box and say, hey, man, I got a headache. I need some help with this. Doc's gone. You need to make sure that you stack up on not only bandages, band-aids, calamine lotion, friggin' uh, any of that stuff. You're also going to have to make sure that you get some books on basic first aid. You know, none of none of us are doctors. I was a combat lifesaver in the Army, which meant that I could give IVs. You know, had rudimentary training with, you know, the medics and stuff like that. Uh, I could give you an IV, all that stuff. That's it. That's the extent of my medical training. Now, that being said, medicine's always been something that's interested me a great deal. So I've always made a point when I got a chance to talk to somebody that was a medical expert, you know, to kind of get ideas, you know, on more triage type, first responder type, you know, injuries, you know, like broken bones, you know, gunshot wounds, stuff like that. We train for that, you know, in our basic first aid, when you go through basic training, and all that stuff, you're taught, you know, uh, 
basic first aid, you know, for trauma injuries, stuff like that, heat, cold weather injuries, you know, all that stuff. But you're going to need to get you some books, you know, and study up on them. You know, to treat just basic crap, you need to also be aware of, you know, like stuff around locally. You know, poison oak, poison ivy, huge down here in the south. You got to be able to identify that and you got to know how to treat it. And you got to, and the other thing is you're going to have to learn how to treat it with remedies that maybe you don't have or maybe you would normally not use. I mean, down here, everybody knows if, you know, I get poison oak, poison ivy, I need to put calamine lotion on it, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, in this scenario, you're not going to have calamine lotion. What do you use? Mud. Mud works wonders. Mud will do a lot of good. You got to make sure you get that mud from a clean source, though. You can't be going to some cow patty, you know, little cow farm, you know, where cows are pooping and crapping right on the banks and use that to putty somebody up. You don't want to use, you know, like some creek that, uh, you know, human sewage and all kinds of other craps being pumped into. You're going to have to find some clean, good black mud to use, you know, to help ease the itching and stuff. Mud will do it. It will help. Um, along with that, you're going to need, uh, you know, antihistamine, you know, to help treat Benadryl, you know, is basically what everybody uses for that kind of stuff. Uh, I, to be honest, I don't know any natural, you know, thing for a Benadryl. It's at 38 minutes. I got a lot of stuff to cover. Man, this is a bigger topic. I should have written this stuff down. Okay, moving past all that stuff. Study up on first aid. That's what I'm trying to say. To wrap that up in a nutshell, keep your head on a swivel. Always pay attention where you're going. And uh, pay attention to your surroundings. Pay attention to the route that you're taking. And study up on some medical stuff. You know, what stuff's going to be important? What do you need? Well, canned food is a big one. Writing paper is another one. You know, pens, writing paper, pencils, stuff like that. You want to document what you're doing. You know, you want to be able to write down, okay, well, over here, you know, at this little location over here, I saw, you know, uh, you know, blackberry bushes, you know. Saw them right over here in Old Man Jones's, you know, farm. Why? That way you can go out and forage. Here's the thing about foraging. You know, it takes basically, if you're doing hunter-gatherer stuff, for a human being, and this is actually really funny, for a human being, it takes foraging, all that stuff, about five acres for you to be able to forage, you know, and be able to live, farm, forage, whatever, be able to live. You know, for your average animal, like a horse, it takes one. Think about that. Humans are really hard animals to please. But you're going to need, you know, five, six acres for one person. You know, that's if you're growing, you know, like carrots, stuff like that. You're still going to need, you know, like berries and roots and stuff like that. And that's something else you got to familiarize yourself with. You know, what berries are edible, you know, what roots are edible, how do you prepare them and all that stuff. Cattail roots, I'm telling you right now, cattail roots are actually really good. Just a little hint. If you see something that's got cattails, dig down, get the root out, wipe them off, clean them real good, bake them like you would a potato. Those things are friggin' excellent. You know, and they go good with pretty much anything. 
Down here in the south, we got like blackberries, huckleberries, all kinds of stuff down here that you can eat. Learn what you can eat, though, because you don't want to eat, you know, stuff like, uh, what's that stuff called? Uh, oh, heck. Like the mistletoe, red berries, stuff like that. That's just a obvious one. You don't want to eat those things. There's another one, too, if you uh, come upon, like, what we call dock and poke salad. They have these big, black-looking berries on them. We used to use them when I was a kid, you know, because it's like ink, basically. So you can take those and bust them up and make a real big mess out of them. You don't want to eat those things. They'll make you sick as hell. You got to learn what you can, can't eat. Poke salad and dock itself, the leafy part and the stems, you can eat. And it's actually pretty good. It's greens, basically, is what it is. It's actually pretty good if you prepare it correctly. But the berries, you don't want any part of. Don't, don't even touch those things. Because they will make you sick as hell. Um, so we've covered all that stuff. Uh, you're going to want, when you, when you go look for your shelter, here's something else you're going to want. Most buildings these days are constructed for central heat and air. That means they're not constructed to exist without controlled temperature system in them. In other words, they don't have a lot of windows. They don't have high roofs. High roofs lets the hot air rise up and, you know, make it cooler down below. So you're going to want something that's got a, <clears throat> you know, open bay if possible so the heat will rise. <clears throat> you're going to want something <clears throat> that you can have a fireplace in. You're going to need one come wintertime. You're going to need something that's got some insulation in it to keep you warm in the wintertime. You know, down here the winters aren't that bad. But they still get cold enough you can freeze to death. Uh, so what kind of heat sources are we looking for here? What are we looking at? Well, you got to have somewhere you can build a fire, even if it's just a burn barrel. But with that burn barrel, you've got to have somewhere for the smoke to go. That's why bays are so friggin' awesome. Get you a bay, build you, you know, get you a couple of barrels, build you fire in them, open the windows up, let that smoke leave. You know? Uh, if you can find a place with a fireplace in it, jump on it. Fireplaces are going to be a necessity. Not only do the burn barrels and fireplaces provide heat, but they also provide you a place to cook. You're going to have to have those things, which means you're also going to have to have wood. How do you gather wood? Well, you can go out there with an axe and make a bunch of noise. You can certainly do that. Or you can go and pick up what's already on the ground and towed it back to where you live, and then cut it up in the safety of your little compound. That would be the smartest way to go. Now, that doesn't mean you can drag, you know, like whole trees over there and stuff. That's going to take a lot of energy up. But, you know, you can go out. It's going to take, again, multiple trips. Patience is the key in a situation like that. You're going to have to make multiple trips, stack it up where it's off the ground so it doesn't rot, you know, Dry it out. Green wood makes a lot of smoke when it burns. Dry wood does not. Smoke is something you want a minimal of. Number one, because you don't want smoke all over the damn place inside where you're living at. Number two, smoke can be seen from a long ways off. It can also be smelled, especially if it's wet. So the less smoke you have, the better. That means you need to use dry wood and you need to do your fires during the daytime. Don't do them at night if you can avoid it, you know. Now, if it's an indoor fire, yeah, you're good. 
you don't have to worry about it being seen. But at night, fires are like beacons. Okay, there's somebody here. If there's somebody here, that means they have stuff I can get. I'm going to probe their perimeter and see just how strong their security is. Now we got to talk about water. Water is the most important thing in a survival. Because if you ain't got water, you can go three, four days without food, you'll be okay. You lose some weight. If you're like me, that won't really hurt nothing. But water, you can't go more than 24 hours without water and be healthy. It's not going to happen. Especially if it's really hot outside. It's not going to happen. You're going to wind up dehydrating. You're going to wind up really either getting sick or dying. Probably both. So where do you get your water at? Well, obviously, you know, bottled water. That's where you start. After that, you're going to need to find some way to get water. And that's not easy. I mean, it's really not. You can get you a barrel, put some plastic on it. Because, you know, in the morning you get dew. Dew is water. It's what it is. So get you, you know, a few barrels. They can be plastic. They can be metal. It doesn't really matter. Make sure they're clean. Plastic would be better because it's easier to clean. And uh, take you, like, trash bags, put it over the top, put it around the side. You use rope or, you know, anything you use to tie that plastic around the top. Take a couple of rocks, put them on the plastic to create, you know, because when you put the plastic over the top of the barrel, it's going to be flat. It's going to be a totally flat surface over the top. Well, you need to make an indention in that. How do you make that indention? Put you a small rock on there. It's not going to break your plastic to create a dip. Then put you a hole in there. The dew will gather on it. It'll run down in the barrel. It's going to take you a while using that system to be able to get enough water to fill up a water bottle. But it's better than nothing. Rain barrels again. That comes in handy. Collect those rain barrels. Keep them covered because if you don't cover them, they're going to grow bacteria And you got to use it quickly, too. Even if it's covered, you're going to grow bacteria in that water eventually. Because you're not going to have iodine tablets and stuff like that to be able to put in there to kill them. So you don't want that water to sit there very long without being poured into like a plastic bottle with a lid on it. That way you can keep all the contaminants out. Open water barrels will eventually grow bacteria and that water will not be good for drinking. It will not be potable. You can use it for showering, stuff like that. Or if you boil it, you can do it. And here's the deal about boiling water. You are gonna, you don't just do it once. You know, you take it, you get it to boil, bring it off a boil, let it cool down, bring it back to a boil, let it cool down again. The reason is because you're going from one extreme temperature to another. So you heat that water up, it kills bacteria off. As water cools back down, the temperature change will kill some more off. Put it back on, fire it up, it kills more bacteria, take it back off, it kills more bacteria. That's how you do it. And then as soon as you get done with that second boil, you put that water inside whatever container, after it cools off, of course, put it inside whatever container you're going to store it in with the lid. It's got to have a lid, an airtight lid, so that nothing can get into it. Uh, as far as lakes and streams nowadays, you don't want to touch any river water, any creek water. That's a no-go. 
You don't want anything to do with that crap. You can go to a lake, pond, you know, something like that. You're going to have to boil that water several times, but eventually after you boil it, as long as it doesn't have like, you know, you've got to make sure there is nothing that is contaminating that water, contaminating that water source. In other words, you got to make sure that, you know, there's no factories dumping crap into it. There's no, you know, fuel or anything else leaking into it. No sewage, none of that stuff. That's what's so hard about a lake or a river or something like that. It's hard to tell what all is being dumped in there. You know, go to a small pond. That water is going to be muddy as hell, but you boil it enough times, you'll be able to drink it. You're going to have to boil it three, four times for it to be clear enough for you to actually drink. And it'll probably be a little bit brackish and it won't taste too good. All right, I've been talking for 49 minutes now and I really haven't scratched the surface on a lot of this stuff. This this big topic, I should have written it out. Um, I hope some of this stuff's helping. I hope it's interesting. Um, as far as what you're going to carry with you, get always have a canteen. Have that canteen full of water on you at all times. Uh, anytime you leave your compound, you are going to want to prepare for a couple of days out. What I mean by a couple of days out is you're going to have to have whatever you're sleeping with, be it sleeping bag, you know, that's going to have to be in your rucksack backpack, as you civilians call it. It's going to have, you want, and that's another thing. When you get a backpack, rucksack, whatever, you want one with a frame that can add some support, get you a good one. I've still got my old army rucksack, you know, down in the basement. That's what I would use. But you're going to want to carry, you know, uh, enough water with you. I would, I would advise, you know, at least two canteens of water you know, with you and another bottle of water inside your bag. You're going to carry a couple of days worth of food with you. Canned would be the best thing to bring with you. You know, uh, you're going to want to bring whatever you're sleeping with, of course, and you're going to want to bring weapons. Uh, a good knife cannot be replaced. Good knife is your survival. You're going to want something that you're going to be able to start fire with. That's something you need to research. I do not have the time, unfortunately, to go into how to make a fire either with a bow or, you know, the old rope. A bow is where you take two sticks, tie them together a rope. The friction creates your fire. Uh, you can do it like that. You can. Do, there's a lot of ways to do fire. Magnifying glass and direct sunlight. There's a couple of different ways you can do fire. Start researching that and practicing on your own uh, because lighters and stuff like that will not be in existence. You're going to need to bring tinder with you. Tinder, like paper, you know, dry paper leaves, something that's easy to flame up, you know, bring that with you at all times because Tinder can be hard to find and it's the backbone of building a good fire. Um, let's see what else. A good knife, always have a good knife. Good hatchet, always have a good hatchet with you. You know, uh, you're going to need a duty belt that can hold your knife, your hatchet, and you're going to want a firearm of some kind. Use a bow to hunt. Learn how to use a bow. Bows are very good weapons. Spear, same thing. Learn how to use it. You're going to want a firearm with you in case you run into trouble. And you don't... Short guns are fine. And when I say short gun, I mean a pistol. A pistol's fine, but it's designed for close range. You know? And despite what you see on the movies, the range is very fucking short. Shotguns are great for close range. You want something that can reach out and touch somebody if you need to. 
Rifle is the way to go. Always carry a rifle with you. Always carry, you know, I've got an AR-15 and AK-47. My AK-47, I've got magazines for it that hold 40 rounds. With my AR, I've got magazines that hold 30 rounds. For me personally, I would carry my AK with me just because it's my preferred weapon. And it's got 40 rounds and it's a bigger caliber. And I can reach out there and touch in. I don't have to worry about it. You're not going to want to use that weapon, though, unless you absolutely have to. Because, number one, ammo is going to be crucial. Ammunition cannot be replaced unless you learn how to make your own firearms and primers and everything else. That's going to be hard to do. Uh, Ammo is just gold. You do not want to use ammunition unless you absolutely have to. Self-defense really is the only time you'll want to use ammunition. You're going to learn how to make snares and traps to catch game. You don't want to shoot them with a damn gun. You don't want to shoot anything with a gun unless it's another human being because they're attacking you, period. That's why you bring it, though, is in case you run into somebody who's hostile, you've got a way to defend yourself. And again, that's why you always have to be careful with your movements. You you always have to think, hide and seek. I do not want to be seen. And always be prepared in case you are seen. Do not be caught off guard if at all possible. That's why you have to, you know, worry so much about where you walk, how you walk, what time of day you walk, all that stuff. Because you don't want to walk in where somebody can see you, but you don't know they're there, so they can set up an ambush, you know, at a choke point, and you are caught completely unawares. But you're going to want to bring a rifle with you of some kind, and uh, you're going to want to make sure, you know, because if it gets rainy or something, you don't want that rain getting on that weapon, if at all possible. So you're going to need, you know, a raincoat or something to wrap that weapon up with, something to put over the barrel, piece of plastic, stick over the barrel with a rubber band to keep water from getting down the barrel, keep the breech closed, you know, stuff like that. Um, learn how to use a bow. Learn how to use spear. Those are going to come in very handy for you. So your basic, you know, pack would be your backpack with at least, we'll say, four days worth of food which, you know, is like four things of canned goods. One can a day is what you're going to eat. A bottle of water will be in there. You're going to need a basic first aid kit. It's got some Band-Aids, bandages, aspirin, Motrin, stuff like that. Uh, something to make a tourniquet with, of course. Uh, you're going to need uh, at least one change of clothes. You're going to need at least two, three changes of socks in there, a change of shoes. Uh, you're sleeping, whatever you're sleeping on. Your tender has to be in there. Uh, any spare ammunition you've got, spare knife, spare hatchet, you know, and that should pretty much something to make a torch with, of course. You know, you can look up how to make a torch. Candle. Candle in a coffee can. If it's cold, candle in a coffee can can save your ass. Look this up. I've got probably about four minutes left on this. Uh, anchor, it, it only gives you like an hour, so I've got to really talk through this quick. Um, I might have to revisit this actually. I might revisit it next week and break it down more. Last time I did actually script it and, uh, you know, I didn't do a very good job this time. I didn't script. I'm just going off my head and I've kind of rambled around a little bit to be honest with you. But anyway, can with the candle in it, uh, your belt will have two canteens on it. It'll have a hatchet. It'll have your primary knife on it and, um, you know, 
you carry a rifle, get a sling for the rifle. Don't carry one in the breach if you're not used to carrying a weapon. Just don't do it. Never, I wouldn't advise carrying around in the breach, you know, in, or in the chamber, even if you are used to it, because you've got too good a chance of bumping up against something that weapon going off. Accidental discharge, AD. You don't want to AD because you don't want to be heard. You don't want to hurt yourself and you don't want to waste ammo. So do not carry around in the chamber. But anyways, I got about three minutes left. Let me know what you guys think about this, man. And like I said, I'm going to revisit this topic next week. I will script it out a little bit better. I'll go through a couple more little scenarios, stuff like that. Uh, feel free to hit me up on Twitter and or at uh, interesting stuff podcast at gmail.com with any recommendations or suggestions or I hate this shit that you've got. And, uh, you know, let me know what you think about this. Let me know what other kind of shows you like to hear in the future. I'm going to have to hop off here because, well, I get one hour and I am really close to that hour being up. But again, hit me up on Twitter, interesting, or at Caesar Podcast on Twitter. Feel free to DM me. I don't care. Uh, email me at interestingstuffpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And um, I'm going to finish this up with what I always do on the safety briefs every week. Do them after my podcast too. Be smart. Be safe. Don't do stupid shit. And uh, I hope each and every one of you has a great weekend. I will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.